Welcome to the Latin Mass Society Iota Unum podcast series. Number two, Joseph Shaw in conversation with Dr. John Rao. My guest today is Dr. John Rao of um, New York. Talk to me from New York. He's the Associate Professor of History at St. John's University in New York um, and has been 42 years, he tells me which must be some sort of a record. Um, <laughs> I'm, the senior also... now. I'm the <laughs> senior member. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Um, and he's also the chairman of the Roman Forum, which, as well as having activities in New York, organizes the annual summer symposium in Gardone in Northern Italy, um, of which I've been um, a participant and various other people from indeed all over the traditional Catholic world. <clears throat> and I do recommend it heartily. Um, people can, anyone can come along and, 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 and participate um, and enjoy the extraordinary two weeks of eating, drinking, <laughs> talking, and listening to uh, lectures in, in roughly that order. <laughs> so anyway, I'm delighted to be talking to um, Dr. Rao, about anything really uh, in these crazy times when it's impossible to talk to anyone in a normal way, um, but particularly since John is in the epicentre of uh, many of the things which have been affecting us on this side of the pond, which is New York, the, the whole um, coronavirus issue, lockdowns, um, the Black Lives Matter and Antifa protests, the election um, of um, the new president, <coughs> or possibly not, um, and, and so on and so forth. It's, it's, um, it's ground zero of, of, the, of the, new, the new world that we're entering, um, as, it, as it was 20 years ago for the war on terror. So, um, John, what's it like living in New York at the moment? demoralizing, extremely demoralizing, because one is seeing really fast forwarded the destruction of a city. Uh, my neighborhood has gone from a, a, a very, very safe, uh, clean, uh, lively area uh, to uh, clearly the, 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 the beginnings of a slum uh, where something like one third of the businesses are now shut down with rubbish piled all over the place with the number of homeless people increasing like mad and everyone really waiting for violence to break out once again. I mean, there were spates of it since, uh, since June uh, and the local precinct, which has always prided itself on the fact that we are among the safest neighborhoods in the city has now told us we live in a completely different kind of environment. So just going out and 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 um, dealing with 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 ordinary life has is, is, is changed. It's changed drastically, but the most important thing right at the moment, aside, as I said, from a few uh, particularly hot uh, incidents that we had over the course of the past seven or eight months, uh, is the the lack of people because it was always a very, very, very um, lively place. And now uh, I can sit in the cafe that I go to in the morning and perhaps watch one person walk by every hour. Yeah. Uh, there's, not, there's not the number of workers in the streets yeah. any longer, coming to work any longer. There's, there's lots of people moving out. I think the official number so far is 300,000. 
have left Manhattan. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not. I know my building, which has 12 units in it, has had four people leave, four apartments leave. Yes, well, it, it, I, I've only visited New York a couple of times in my life, but one of the things that everyone, everyone says about New York is the, is the energy of the city. You walk around New York and you feel that you're in this kind of buzzing, buzzing place where there's lots of people who are very busy doing lots of things and making money and trying things out and there's art and there's, and of course everyone is out all the time. Um, I think some people don't even have, you know, the option of making food in their own homes. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a city of restaurants, but they must be very badly affected by, by they're, this. They're terribly badly affected. Uh, and the ones that are, are hurt, well, the people who are hurting the most are, as usual, poor people because mm. the restaurants are staffed by a lot of immigrants, yeah. particularly Mexican immigrants, um, who are in a desperate situation. And everyone is, is, is really living day to day because looking for a new lockdown uh, on the part of the, the mayor and <coughs> the governor uh, for this supposed second wave um, that, um, that quite frankly more and more people are dubious about treating seriously yes so we're yeah. waiting we're waiting the general attitude of the people that i meet on the street is that something is going to come this uh the in the next week or two and that it will be the coup de grace for for uh restaurants but the restaurants are also hurting from the fact that there are so many people not returning any longer to work due to big corporations discovering that they don't need the people to come into the offices any longer. I can quote one example to you. I have a friend of mine who works in one of the biggest of the, uh, of the, uh, the skyscrapers here that normally has a working population of 8,000 in it. It's returned to 300 and they don't expect any more people to come in. Uh, so that, that means that all of the small shops nearby that provided lunches for these people have no work any longer. Yeah. And that's gone for those reasons too, not just entertainment. Yeah, yeah. So, and the, 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 well, the, the feeling is that many of these jobs, actually, they didn't need to have these enormous, enormous buildings in very, very expensive places in order to employ these people to do their jobs. Right, and this just simply served as a catalyst for confirming that. Mm. Yes. Uh, so that will never return. It's 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 people have had different experiences of of of, of working you know, from home under these circumstances. And my I, my feeling was at the beginning, um, oh how interesting! I'm going to have to teach online, which I've never done. Right, same um, with me. Yeah, and I thought, well, you know, maybe this is the way forward because wouldn't it be great? I could teach people in you know all over the world and and and. Um, it could be quite liberating, but actually, I, I can't stand it <laughs> the more I do it. No, I hate it. I loathe it. Uh, ironically, um, uh, maybe not so ironically, what I find very interesting is that the few students that I have who I think are capable of being able to uh, actually learn something under these circumstances because of the fact that they're in, they're, they're motivated and they will look things, look for things on the internet. They're the ones who hate it the most. The ones who could use it can't or don't want it. Um, and it's because of the fact that they, I think, uh, with their superior um, uh, mental capacity and also soul capacity, they're aware of the fact that you need personal contact. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. So that's yeah. my experience as well. Well, I mean, here, here we are, ironically, talking across the Atlantic <laughs> on using this wonderful technology. Um, and, um, um, you know, and, and it, it is true that one of the wonderful things about Gardone um, that, that you've been running for all these, all these heaven knows how many decades now <laughs> is, is the not just a little bit of personal contact, but prolonged personal contact. You're spending right. actually day after day being able to have, you know, more than one meal, you know, more than one afternoon chat. Um, to actually get to know people from from different places, um, and of course you come back the same year, and many of them are there again. And you know, I feel I've real, I've made real contact with with people, listened to a talk, and chatted with them, and seen them again, and talked to them next year. Um, I think well, this is you can't do that. You can't do that virtually. You can't do that through the mediation of a, of a computer. You can't see people's reactions. You, you, it's just a not. A, well, a friend of mine said it's just a poor quality form of communication. <laughs> there are people, there are things that you can convey, you know, information that you can convey that, that, that which is fine, but real kind of, you know, the, the, the heart to heart is it, it, just not, not happening. Um, but um, it may be, it may be the future if we want to carry on in academia. We'll, we'll, we will see. We will see at the moment um, everyone, um, all the universities in, in, in Britain are desperate to have the students on site so they can pay their rent. Otherwise, right. Right. otherwise we would have gone straight over to the kind of new, you know, the brave new world, I think. Right. But actually their business model depends on filling those rooms. Which right. is bit, yeah, I mean, right. it's, it's, I mean there, are, there are, I mean, in some universities, particularly in, in Scotland, they went back to the universities to find that they weren't going to be allowed out of their, out of their um, residence buildings they couldn't even use the libraries um there was no you know there's gonna be no face-to-face -face teaching so well what was the what was the point of them leaving home and coming um they can't even meet each other they can't even socialize outside their own outside their own building so i mean that that's obviously not sustainable so i don't know how that's gonna how that's gonna work out um but you've also you've also had you've also had riots and disturbances and and and, and things just to put the put the top hat on it Right, yes. No, and we've seen them because it happens to be the case that where I live and the precinct, the police precinct that I live in is the one that had to deal with the worst of it in Manhattan, right. which is over at um, Union Square on 14th Street, where the police cars were being attacked, set on fire. And then um, there were also these two massive marches that came right up past my apartment in June. Um, one of them celebrating this Supreme Court decision uh, that was then uh, then um, uh, turned into a grand event by the LGBTQ people, and then others that were promoting Black Lives Matter events. Both of them, by the way, not only in total violation of the lockdown rules, but given permits by the mayor's office, since the mayor himself took part in demonstrations, to uh, do what everyone else was not permitted to do, and also to have a huge fireworks display on the Hudson River with thousands upon thousands of people crammed up against one another uh, watching. Uh, it, it, it was mind boggling. St uh, storefronts were smashed during these, um, these riots. Fires were set, but that I think was even more the case the first uh, day or two after the election, right. uh, just recently. Uh, and the fires were the things that disturbed my wife a bit because they were they were small but numerous scattered all over. We also know 
Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll just give you one instance of this. Um, my, my wife, because of her uh, pro-life work, she, she um, ends up dealing with couples that, 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 that need help. And uh, she had a conversation with one of these couples that, that needed help. And the man um, noted the um, stockpiles of weapons that a particular group that he was making reference to had should uh, they be called upon uh, due to the arrival of National Guardsmen in the city uh, to, to, uh, to utilize, to, um, to fight, fight against them. And we don't know whether that <coughs> is what's going to happen um, should things heat up in the next couple of weeks over the election. Golly, golly. Well, that's, that's um, yeah, well, I mean, we, we've, we've, seen, we've seen things um, a little bit like that in, in, in London, but it's, it's, I think it's what, we're, what we've got in the UK is really it's an echo of, of the situation in America in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, so and the issues um, in, over here, you know, people are trying to, trying to talk about this, exactly the same issues, even though the historical background in England, of course, is completely different from, you know, the history of the United States. Indeed, I mean, the students in my own, in my, my own institution um, were complaining um, about our, you know, links to colonialism and slavery and, and stuff. And, and somebody patiently explained to them that actually we didn't have any because we're not that old and, you know, we didn't have, you know, this kind of historic wealth or, or anything like that. So, you know, their fantasy really um, was, was rather punctured. Um, so I mean, it's, it's in a weird way, in a weird way, where we're, we're kind of hearing, hearing the, the whole thing repeated um, as as farce what's been what's been what's been done as, as tragedy in in America um, but oh but Joseph one yeah. thing I have to mention yes the black lives matter I mean I can't vouch for what it's like elsewhere uh, but here in New York every time there's been a black lives matter demonstration you have to have a telescope to hunt for a black that's taking part in it Right, uh, because it's been ninety percent white people, yeah. and everybody that has taken any kind of serious look at Black Lives Matter knows how much uh, the LGBTQ people are involved in it. Because the foundresses of it are 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 very much um, lesbian, yeah. and um, and yeah. so it's 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 one of these things where I, re I remember Owen Chadwick. <laughs> Um, from, from Cambridge, a book that he wrote on secularization in the 19th century. He said that um, whenever you hear the words, the will of the people in the 19th century, you have to understand that what you're talking about is one-tenth of the bourgeoisie. <laughs> and whenever you hear the words Black Lives Matter in the United States, you have to wonder exactly how many, how many people are actually Black that are involved in the whole thing. Yes, yes. Yes, that's right. It's it's become a it's become a a, a, a totemic um, uh, issue, um, and that, that that's 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 true. That's true here as well, of course, um, to, to 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 a large extent. Um, the um, obviously you've had the kind of the perfect storm, and I suppose it's not a coincidence, but it, it has all that it's all come together. That not entirely a coincidence that the you know, the protests and the election and the, the kind of the, the, the Trump. The Trump, the whole Trump thing, and what Trump has done to his supporters, what Trump has done to his opponents. Um, I mean, it, it's really an extraordinary. Uh, it's been an extraordinary four years, 
um, and it's not it's not over yet. Um, one of the things that's that's been really really extraordinary for us watching from from a distance is the the conscious paralleling of the um, Jacobinism right. by American radicals, um, as if they didn't realise, as if they didn't know that that actually that all ended in terrible bloodbath and then you know and then in tyranny actually a tyranny which presumably the Jacobins didn't you know weren't in favor of um so you know we've had people talking about um you know about establishing communes and and and, and um, lawless areas and um, and actually bringing in a guillotine I mean a mock-up guillotine uh, right. with a teddy bear in it um <laughs> in one of the one of the uh, pictures I can't even remember where that was now but it's it, it seems it seems a sort of strange I don't know whether it's, it's because they're well informed uh, historically or, or extraordinarily bad informed what, what, what is that what message are they trying to to um, give to us well uh, it is the case in the United States that there, there there's a, a there is a sort of double revolutionary tradition here and um, the one of them the the, the the sort of deeper one that uh, has affected the country, very, very slowly, because it's in its nature to, to, to operate very slowly, is, is the sort of moderate enlightenment Lockean um, individualism that uh, can bit by bit eat away at um, the traditions of a country without at times having supporters even wanting that or thinking that they're doing that because of the fact that they're always convinced that on some sort of common sense level, you'll be able to maintain a tradition. But I mean, in that one aspect, and I'll get to the radicals in a minute, in that one aspect of the American tradition, you've got what seems to be a, a solid commitment to historical commonsensical stability eaten away at by this reduction of the individual of everything to the individual and then the individual to pretty much a material creature that already had reached its its logical conclusion uh, in the United States uh, with the statement, uh, for example, uh, just recently, I forget how many years ago, but but recently of Justice Kennedy, um, when uh, he said that every American has the right to create his own reality. <laughs> and if you have a situation where every American is able to create his own reality, well, then there is no glue holding anything together and you have to expect it will all come tumbling down. But the general attitude of the more conservative minded figures is that nobody will actually ever do anything that would shake the, uh, the tree. But there is a radical tradition in the United States that is individualist and is very happy to tap into everything from the French revolutionary tradition to ultimately um, a, a Marxist tradition. And I think more than anything else right now, a Maoist um, uh, tradition of things that affects education as well as, um, as, as, as everything from education to economics. And if you wanna take somebody at the time of the French of the American revolution as a representative of this, it's a person like Tom Paine you know, Thomas Paine, who comes in and then taps into this much more radical element uh, with his book called, ironically, Common Sense, you know, in uh, 1776. And there's always that underlying stream that's there. And those radicals um, uh, have a tradition in the United States, and it's been built up 
much, much more over the course of the years since the 1960s. And these people have a sense of what they want to do. And they know that um, this will involve blood and this will involve purges. And they're perfectly willing um, to utilize it. Unfortunately, what's happened in this country, uh, again, especially since the 1960s, um, is that um, uh, chiefly forces in the Democratic Party have been willing to go along with this and play with it. And uh, their heads are going to be the first ones to roll because people like Biden, insofar as he's got any kind of uh, brain left, uh, or Nancy Pelosi, or some of these other people, they're not, they're not radicals in that sense, um, but they've given a chance for these others to be able to pursue their program, and they're going to want to have their, 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 their support um, uh, recognized and, um, and answered uh, by real concrete measures, uh, should they be able to take power. So they yeah. are there. The problem with the more conservative-minded people who are nevertheless promoting this is that they, I don't think, can really in their heart of hearts believe that the United States could ever fall apart um, as completely as it, it, it deserves to fall apart right now. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a feature of, 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 of the kind of, the, you know, the conservative liberal kind of political tradition that um, sometimes they want to dismantle this or that specific tradition um, or um, taboo um, or institution. Um, but whenever they talk about what they want to do, they always seem to take for granted that everything else will say exactly the same. Right. They take for granted everything except the one specific thing which they want to change. So they say, well, just imagine what it's going to be like, because it's going to be like exactly how it is now, but without this one element right. to right. the fabric of the kind of social attitudes and traditions and um, general atmosphere. Um, so you just take out this brick from the middle of the wall <laughs> and everything else will just, you know, just stay there by, by kind of magic. <laughs> um, for, for example, yes. in New York, in New York um, uh, when I look at their faces now, uh, the um, governor of New York, Cuomo, is more and more looking, I mean, literally looking to me like Caligula. And the mayor, uh, de Blasio, is Nero. He looks more like Nero. The governor is um, a completely amoral Machiavellian um, who I don't think has got a, um, an, a, an ideological idea in his head. Whereas the mayor, who is really thick and stupid, um, is a Marxist. He is a Marxist. Uh, he has made comments over and over again about, um, about things such as uh, uh, how good it would be if every building in New York belonged to the state. Uh, right. <laughs> that what you could do is you could uh, socially, um, socially revolutionize the city. Uh, so you've got an example of this dichotomy here, even within just the state. Yes, yes. Uh, Yes, uh, yes, uh, yeah, indeed. Um, well, um, how is it? How has it come to this? Um, and I ask that not specifically about New York or even about America, but you know, Western society in in general. I'm thinking about the the historical historical parallel here with with the French Revolution because 
and looking at the 16th and 17th century France, it was it was the it was the most apparently the most powerful country in, in Europe. It was threatening to take over Europe. Right. Um, and you know, there it is in the in the in the center with this kind of massive display of, of, of wealth and, and, and power by um, Louis the Fourteenth. And and yet not so very long after that you 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 have and also of course it's a great catholic nation you know they, they did their best they dealt with the protestants in, in 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 perhaps not in a way that would want them to but they kind of dealt with the situation it didn't didn't spiral out of control um and um in fact it's a country where um you know the jesuits weren't suppressed um in the way that they had been in in, in other countries um by the state <laughs> they waited until the pope suppressed them um, and and yet this is the place where actually it became the epicenter of this revolutionary idea, which turned the streets of Paris into into a shambles. Um, and well, how on earth? How on earth could this happen? I, <laughs> one of my vices is Twitter, I suppose. <laughs> well, occasionally there's something amusing happens and, and someone was talking about some some aristocrat who was who was executed on this day they like doing that otd hashtag otd so on this day back in whenever it was 1792 this particular chap was 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 guillotine and his his last words were obviously looking at the charge sheet or his 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 death death um um sort of uh, um warrant he said, I see you have made three spelling mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, I got it. it's so easy to picture this, this, this man of oh, you know, great education, refinement, and, you know, and, 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 and niceness of taste. Um, and there he is, by some extraordinary turn of fate, right. about to be killed by by fanatics, lunatics, just because he has precisely that education and taste and everything. I mean, well, how on earth could a society do this to itself? And yet it happened, not, not you know, not recently, but, but, but back, in, <laughs> back in the end of the 18th century. Yeah, well, I mean, you have a combination of a variety of things. Um, one, you do have of, of a very small number of determined people who wanted to bring the thing down. Mm. Uh, and I think that a clear indication of the fact that it is a small number of people is that when it spent its force between 1789 and 1794 in only five years, and then the reaction really begins, uh, it, it takes another, well, right down to the present uh, for a situation to become uh, as radical again, seriously as radical again. It's a, a small number of people, but a small number of people who had the advantage of knowing what they wanted um, and then being able to take um, certain circumstances and utilize them in a way which Lenin argued that an elite party would be able to take certain circumstances and use them for their, for their benefit. So you have some people who know what they want, especially from 1750 onwards, especially from 
the time when France's financial problems really become serious because that's that that is a major that is the major uh, uh, catalyst for the revolution in a practical way the bankruptcy of the country and after this war of the the Austrian succession it's it's finances its financial problems throw the government into an ever greater panic in a way that people wanting to utilize this to bring it down uh, could, could, could work with. So that's one thing. Then on the other side, and I think uh, this is, uh, well, I, it's not just me. I mean, it's a, it's a the, the major historical argument. The, um, the demoralization, the divisions, the, um, the um, lack of, co of a cohesive, uh, uh, defense and offense on the part of the conservative forces in French society, and particularly the Catholic Church, uh, is uh, something, therefore, that, uh, that could allow the whole of French society to become a kind of gigantic Swiss cheese with holes in it that you could poke through. Uh, there's two superb books on this subject, one of them which is called The Religious, I think it's The Religious origins or roots of the French Revolution. And the other one, uh, the, the desacralization of the French monarchy in the 18th century. Um, the religious origins of the French Revolution are hugely important because um, you have this, uh, for one thing, massive, uh, massive problem caused by the Jansenist issue. And then the, um, the, the bitter fighting between Jansenists and then Jesuits as the chief representative of the anti-Jansenist position with a whole variety of vultures gathering around for di different reasons, eager to do in the Jesuits who provided the most cohesive and um, substantive uh, defense of the Catholic faith and, um, and uh, class of people being raised up as defenders of the Catholic faith. And when they were chucked from the whole picture as they were by the time you get down to the 1760s and 1770s, you, you've got a big gap um, in providing a generation able to really defend the Catholic faith. So you've got that as a big problem. You've got also a division religiously in French society on the part of the French forces that from the 1600s onwards were eager to, eager to give a, a full Catholic, to try to build up an entire Catholic society represented by the whole group of people that were around St. Vincent de Paul in particular. And then those who are much more political minded represented at the beginning of this by Richelieu and his idea of tying together the French state and the Catholic cause as, as one in a way which is really not acceptable. And that division continues onwards and eats away at the ability of Catholics to provide a, 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 fully, a fully Catholic um, and not purely political Catholic uh, defense of the, of the faith. And then you have also this peculiar personal problem of Louis XV. Louis XV, given in particular the way in which the role of the French monarch as unified with the Catholic faith had become so important. Um, Louis XV personally, a quite intelligent man and also not a hypocrite, um, given the fact that he had all of these uh, paramours, um, could not go to communion. He could, not, he could not serve as the sacred leader of the nation in the way in which um, his, um, his, his uh, 
his, his predecessor, Louis XIV, after he uh, settles down with, Ma, uh, with um, uh, Madame de Maintenon, uh, when he settles down and, and uh, lives a, 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 a moral Catholic life, could. Um, so that you've got the whole of the French monarchy's sacred role, uh, for all intents and purposes, abandoned from particular, in particular, the 1730s and 1740s onwards. And that was hugely, hugely significant. Um, but if you, if you put it all together, I think the failure to have uh, a really serious understanding of what it is that distinguishes a Catholic society from what it is that was being promoted from the, the Enlightenment forces onwards, uh, from uh, the Enlightenment forces, both moderate and radical, um, is, is very telling in this whole uh, argument. A good man like Louis XVI, who did not have the problems of his, of his, his grandfather, um, and who was a devout Catholic, um, has no words to be able to explain what it is that he's defending against the revolutionaries. It's very instructive. He doesn't know exactly what it is that he can say to indicate what's wrong with the revolutionary position. Mm -hmm. And in this regard, what's really important and what a lot of Catholics, uh, and I mean uh, also a lot of educated Catholics don't realize is that the standard defense that Catholics developed of their position um, from really the 1730s onwards, once he became a force bringing what was being done in England into uh, onto the continent, and I'm talking about Voltaire as an emissary um, of, of um, English thought onto the continent, is that Catholic, um, uh, Catholic educators to a large degree thought that the best defense of the Catholic faith was what it was that was presented by uh, Locke, Newton, um, the whole position of really basically English wiggery. <laughs> and okay. it doesn't work. Okay. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 um, I, I owe a great deal to you, John, in the development of my own thinking on, on these and, and, and related issues, because I not only have I heard your, your talks in Gardenia the last few years, but I, I, I at one point, year, many years ago, I, I bought, and this, this dates this dates this, this anecdote, I bought <laughs> cassette tapes. Remember those? I can just about remember them. But <laughs> cassette tapes of a, a kind of a complete set of talks that you gave, which seemed to cover the entire, the whole of, 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 of human history. And... <laughs> Um, and I, I remember you on in these and other, other other talks of yours, which I listened to from the the, um, the Keep the Faith website, um, which are which is very worth visiting, incidentally, to to all listeners. You can even hear me um, now on on there, um, and um, and I remember you 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 making you making this point that after the Enlightenment, well, that that, that there was a failure of a Catholic philosophical, academic, intellectual response to the Enlightenment in general. Um, and then in many cases, what people thought needed to be done to fend off the, the promoters of the Enlightenment was, was, was simply disciplinary. Right. Keep right. a lid on things just by sending in the troops. Right. Um, but um, you have this odd phenomenon which, which of course affects the other monarchies more than, 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 than the French monarchy, but in, in, in 
in, um, in Portugal and, and in Austria and, and, and places, you've got this enlightened despotism being taken up by Catholic monarchs who then turn on the Jesuits, they turn on the church, they, and you find all sorts of extraordinary things happening, like the suppression of, of, of contemplative religious houses. Right. Um, Edward um, von Habsburg, who is in fact currently the, the um, Hungarian ambassador to the Holy See, he, he wrote a very interesting article a while ago in the, in the Catholic Herald um, about Josephism. Right. Um, so the Emperor Joseph um, in the, um, well, quite early in the, in the, um, well, in the mid 18th century, isn't it? Um, that he, I mean, he, he suppressed hundreds of religious institutions. Oh, right. Staggering, absolutely right. staggering. And I mean, in the most tragic, awful, awful way, sent away, you know, these men and women who devoted their lives to, to prayer. Um, and of course they had no, you know, they had no kind of life skills as we would say. Um, I mean, he just, it was just absolutely, just terrible. Um, and he, um, he just, he, he, he convinced himself in a sort of enlightenment kind of stroke Protestant um, way that it was not a good thing. Um, right. that, you know, if religious were perhaps teaching in schools or, or nursing in hospitals, maybe that was okay. But, you know, um, the contemplation was, was, was not an ideal that should be promoted or indeed permitted. Really extraordinary. Um, um, and that's, you know, people protested, of course, but as you say, I mean, this, this, this silence on the part of, you know, the, the a tragic figure of the, of the French king um, was, was anticipated by the, by the inarticulacy of, of Catholics in response to the entire enlightenment phenomenon. Right. Um, right. And, yeah. And to take something else, which I think you probably said, which I kind of made <laughs> part of my own um, thinking, is that um, it was a story of the wind that, that, that at Council of Trent, education of priests is taken out of universities and put into seminaries. Right, there's, I mean, there's, there wasn't any clear, um, uh, there wasn't any clear program for educating, certainly the secular clergy. Mm. Uh, with 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 the regulars, there's more of a, a an understanding of what needs to be done. Although, of course, it failed miserably with the Augustinians because Luther Luther was already uh, teaching theology before he knew anything about about the subject. But um, but uh, there's nothing that's structured at all uh, before the Council of Trent, and even with the Council of Trent, the Council of Trent focused on certain models that were given by particular bishops, uh, there's, uh, because most bishops haven't the faintest idea what to do with their diocese. And what happened uh, already before Trent and then at Trent was that the model given by a number of bishops, there were, there were one or two in Italy in particular before Trent and then after Trent, um, uh, the Barmeos in, in Milan are hugely important in this regard. And then of course in Spain, there was already this reform going on. And what they, what they basically did is they looked to these particular model bishops for guidelines as to how exactly to create some kind of seminary training. Um, but yeah, uh, beforehand, uh, 
generally speaking, what happened would be somebody would either just be noticed by the local squire and uh, and then and then handed over to be ordained uh, by the bishop to serve as the local the local um, uh, uh, the, the, the local priest. Or if you were lucky, maybe you had some time to uh, follow uh, instructions by somebody who knew something uh, down the road. Uh, and then the lucky few would go off to university. But uh, it's, it's, it's always been a monumental task to prepare the massive secular clergy that you need for the Catholic Church. And uh, living up to what ought to be the model is, is, uh, has, has, has probably only um, had some success seriously at a large scale in the 19th and 20th centuries. You know, yeah, and sure, it's collapsed sure. entirely so that you could almost indicate that somebody who's gone to a seminary should not be ordained. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, in Oxford, of course, we preserve the, 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 the remnants of this, the, 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 the memory of this, this, the kind of arrangement they had. Obviously, there were many uneducated clergy in the late Middle Ages, but some did have an education. And Exeter College... better than most places. Well, yeah, right. Exeter College was... A college for educating clergy for the Diocese of Exeter, um, and um, Lincoln College was for the Diocese of Lincoln, <laughs> um, and Canterbury Hall, uh, which is now Canterbury Quad, which is part of Christchurch, was for the for the um, Archdiocese of, of, of Canterbury. Um, but what one of the things that Trent said, yes, set up seminaries, but also by the same token, withdraw from universities. So there's a sense, I think, I mean, in this and in some other indications as well, they, they, they understand that the world is turning against the church. Right. That the, the, the ordinary secular institutions, well, we shouldn't say secular, ordinary in social, you know, educational, political institutions can no longer be assumed to be good places for Catholics to be, right. to develop ideas, to, to, you know, to be safe while, you know, forming a, a priest or, or, or religious or, or, or something. Um, and we've got to have our own institutions now, which are specifically built for this. Um, but at the same time, of course, that withdrawal, it makes it worse. Right. It right. makes it worse, both, both in the sense that, that they're no longer there to kind of leaven the institution, but also the kind of edu education they do get is no longer equivalent to a secular education. Right, that was a huge battle in Germany in the 19th century, as well in the Catholic world, because of the fact that, um, I mean, Germany is one of the great centers of Catholic revival in the 19th century. And the question was, should the people who were going to be uh, become priests, and especially those destined for higher positions, should they be um, uh, taking their theology at a, uh, a faculty that's part of the regular university system, or should they be, be doing it in, in seminary? And it, it seems to me that, um, you know, it is this kind of yin-yang issue here that, uh, I mean, I've seen, I've seen um, situations where, well, quite frankly, just, just thinking of, of New York right now, I mean, I would, I would um, send, I would, at least up until this current crisis, have, have with, with great enthusiasm sent the good solid Catholics to Columbia University to go to finish their training because I knew that in subjects like history, they would get a much better picture than they would at any kind of isolated Catholic institution. And so it's a kind of yin yang. I mean, it goes up and down, accordion-like, 
some of this, some of that at different times, different moments. Yes, yes. I mean, it's not something that can be settled for all time. It, it's no. going to depend on what the secular institutions are like and, 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 and the resources of the church um, and, and, and so on. Um, that's the kind of the, the general background in the 18th century. Um, and it, it seems to me that we've got a similar general background now. I mean, you say that the, the, the church in France had been had been destabilized and 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 had lost its its prestige um especially in paris i think the jansenists were particularly powerful in paris weren't they so you've got this extraordinary um period of continuously um of continuous policy reversals one minute the king's in favor of the jansenists always protecting them at least the next minute he's persecuting them next um, and so, I mean, no, after a while, no one can take that seriously anymore. Right, right. I mean, there's no. books on, 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 on practice, Catholic practice in Paris in the period, again, from 1750 in particular onwards. And there's, there's, there's a, a, a steady decline in, um, uh, let's say, for example, Easter duty. Uh, right. because they, they, kept, they kept track on that. I mean, you have situations where, where the, 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 uh, the, arch, the, the Bishop of Paris and then the Archbishop of Paris uh, later in the century um, is, is exiled from Paris because of this change of policy that you mentioned. Right. Uh, they were, they were um, at, at sometimes at the beginning of the century pro-Jansenist, then later in the century very much anti-Jansenist. And the king who himself was anti-Jansenist, Louis XV, nevertheless, for political reasons, exiled the Archbishop of Paris because he was anti-Jansenist. <laughs> uh, and uh, 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 the number of cases that you can, you can uh, literally chapter and verse uh, recite of parishes in Paris before the revolution, where uh, you have a Jansenist pastor for a bit uh, with the anti-Jansenist congregation leaving and then an anti-Jansenist pastor coming in with the Jansenist part of the congregation leaving uh, so that there's war in heaven already before 1789 even is rung in. Yes, yes, it's, 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 it's calculated to, to, to make it impossible to... Oh, Joseph. Yeah, I mean, but it's, it's one of the things that, that, that strikes me here is this is what this is the situation we've got in the church today i'm not exactly the same but we've got a situation in which the church's prestige and moral authority has been uniquely eviscerated right, right. And first by the whole post-vatican ii problem um, and now specifically by the sex abuse issue right, right. um and it's if, if there's ever a moment in, in, in history where, you know, the, the church will be incapable of, of, of saying anything of substance, of, of, of that would move events that, that would actually influence people, you know, this is not it. <laughs> I mean, this is absolutely, I mean, it's, it's a tragic thing because we've seen this in Ireland. They had this huge kind of explosion of, 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 um, cases and 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 exposure of them and um and then you have of course the the referendum on abortion and the bishops hid um and they did it self-consciously 
as I understand it, they, 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 they took advice and they thought about it, and they talked to the pro-life leaders and they decided that it would be better for them to be absent from the whole debate. Because as soon as one of them put his head over the parapet, everyone would shout, ah, child abuser. Uh, <laughs> and it would, you know, it would make it impossible to get the message across at all. And now I don't know whether that was you know, a prudent thing or, or not, but I mean, certainly the net result was that there was, you know, the normal institution that you'd expect to be leading this, you know, the opposition to this is just morally absent and suddenly, you know, the, 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 the um, well, the, the, the referendum was lost. Um, it's difficult to imagine. I mean, it's been so long since the, the, the church in, in, in America or, or Britain stood up in a unified way to oppose social you know, changes or anything. But it's difficult to imagine even them wanting to do that. But it, it's if they did want to, if by some weird you know, chance they, they suddenly realised, well, perhaps, perhaps the flame started licking around their own toes in a way that forced them to take a stand. Um, and indeed, I mean, interesting to see you, you, we, we, the bishops of England and Wales have suddenly decided that, that there's this latest, you know, restrictions on worship are a bit much. Well, no one would listen to them. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the whole situation here is, um, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's similar. Um, the thing that I think about more than the, the sex scandal is uh, the question of the, the pro-life and the abortion and the, the civil marriages yeah. and uh, uh, LGBTQ stuff because, because uh, there's so many bishops that have made it clear in the United States uh, that they don't treat the abortion issue seriously. We just had recently the Archbishop the, of, of Washington saying that he has no problem giving communion to Biden, mm -hmm. uh, who is openly pro-abortion. Uh, then you have other bishops saying, well, that would be horrific because you can't be pro-abortion. And the church in the United States is just not looked upon, but whatever, by whatever part of the Catholic population uh, is still going to mass, uh, but not traditionalist in character, yeah. as, as, as having any kind of um, uh, cohesive voice. I mean, if somebody says something of uh, one sort, which sounds Catholic, you can always find other bishops to say something which is the opposite on each yeah. issue. So they've really canceled themselves out as any kind of uh, uh, serious, serious uh, element to be um, to be to, to, to rely on. Uh, I, the, the number of people who go to church since the reopening of the churches here in June is, I think, estimated at I think thirty percent of what it was uh, before the whole crisis began, and that was already very low. Um, it had already gone down considerably. So the church is sociologically non-existent as a political force. The only thing that does matter as a political force uh, that it, that's Catholic in character is our uh, forces that are dedicated to particular issues like pro-life forces. You know, that's, 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 that's about it. Yeah. That's about yeah. it. Yes, yeah. yes, indeed. I, it, it's, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer in perhaps perforce. <laughs> I have to be a believer in, in, in lay activism and, and, and lay leadership um, in its own sphere in, in Catholic issues. But I also think, um, and indeed I think I, I feel I've seen this, that bishops have a role 
which cannot be replaced. Right, absolutely. Um, you know, and this is a funny thing that, that's happened in the pro-life movement in, in, in England, that um, every now and then a bishop does say something or, or, or does something. Um, and there was a very dramatic thing. Um, well, it's about 10 years ago now. We, um, there's a, there's a kind of, there's a kind of escalating series of demonstrations, counter demonstrations outside a particular abortion clinic in London, in Ealing. Um, and um, at the kind of the, the, the pinnacle, the crisis point of this, um, an auxiliary bishop in London went along. Um, he's now a, he's not, he's not the Bishop of East Anglia, uh, Bishop Alan Hopes. Um, and he went along and led the praying of the, of the, of the, of the rosary. Um, and it was amazing. The opposition went absolutely crazy. Right. And they had a, they had a counter demonstration there. Um, and we all thought, golly, you know, what's the next, what's the next thing? And it closed down. This uh, clinic closed down. Yeah. It was, I mean, not right away, not that minute, but it was, um, it was really weird. Um, no, I, I fully agree with you. Um, you, you and, and it's not, uh, let's, let's, quite frankly, historically, the papacy has a better record than the episcopacy does in terms of producing good, good uh, popes. Uh, the episcopacy has always had a problem uh, really living up to what a bishop, bishop should be. But that's what is so extraordinary in that when there have been serious turnarounds, it has been, generally speaking, uh, only a handful of really magnificent bishops that um, have provided the model for everybody else. And it, it, I've experienced this myself, that when a bishop says something or does something, you, you're, you're, you're electrified. Yeah. Uh, and it, you, you, you know the, the, the story, it always brings up my mind, the famous story about uh, the, um, uh, under, uh, under Constantius, uh, I, I, th I think it's under Constantius. It could be one of the later ones in the fourth century with one of these semi-Aryan positions uh, going around and trying to get St. Basil the great signature uh, and the representative uh, trying to get his signature on this statement to try to fudge on the issue says, well, you know, the others have signed and Basil says, well, perhaps you haven't met a real bishop before. <laughs> uh, and I always think about that when I hear a bishop say something that sound and then put his body behind it you just say well this is a bishop yeah and you yeah. do you are electrified by the whole thing and you there's just no way you need the lay activism but you've got to get the bishop or a bishop and then to get right to the top you ultimately need a pope as the cherry on the cake you yeah. can't do anything in the roman catholic church that will have a lasting impact until you have the papacy also on your side. Yes, yes, that that I I, I that's absolutely right. Um, both in the current situation and also historically, you look at the reform movements and, and, and right. stuff. Uh, thinking about them though, um, you know the the, the Jesuits, uh, the Cluniac reform, and everything in between, um, the friars, the, they, 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 you see them suddenly having a, an effect, an impact on the whole church, a kind of leavening effect on the whole church with the papacy behind right. it. With the, with the, with the, the papacy gives its stamp of approval, often it gives it, it privileges, which is really, really useful, like being able to go into dioceses where 
um, regardless of what the bishop says, <laughs> without having to get permission, and that sort of thing. And in a small way, that happened with the traditional mass. You know, Pope um, Benedict XVI. Right. We had that kind of interesting stamp of approval and a sort of a, a permission, which, 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 well, somewhat mitigates the authority of the bishop in his own diocese. Um, although, you know, we wouldn't normally say that, put it quite like that. But the fact is that the bishops can no longer stop the bad bishops can no longer stop us. Right. At least this aspect of of, of our work. Um, and um, well, it, to what it's to some extent, this gives me this gives me some hope because I, if you look at the, the the previous history of those movements before they got the papal stamp of approval, right. you know, they were small and relatively insignificant and having relatively well limited impact, maybe an impact in particular dioceses or particular right. religious communities. Um, but the work they were doing at during that phase of their existence was absolutely necessary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was that that they managed to build up, which was which was then amplified by the, the favor of the Pope. So, I mean, I, I feel this is slightly what we are, the situation we're at and a lot of people are at in the church, that we've got to keep going with our work. We've got to keep going with our, whatever it is, the education or the activism about abortion or the liturgy. And so when there's a Pope who wants to harness something, right. there is something to harness. Right. There is something there which yeah. he can say, well, this has my approval and, you know, go out and do something about it. Right, right. And it doesn't have to be, and historically it never has been, large numbers of people, as long as it is something which is seriously Catholic. I always um, think of in the case of the um, the Reformation, Catholic Reformation period, these um, uh, pre-Trent uh, little fraternities uh, or, or confraternities called companies of divine love mm. that mixed together clergy and laity. Uh, one of them that was quite important was in, that used to meet in a little church in Trastevere in Rome, St. Dorothea. And uh, a number of the people who were involved in that uh, then became hugely important in terms of guiding the Catholic Reformation. And just like with any kind of fraternal group, when they looked upon who it is that they could turn to for help when they reached positions of yes. importance, they knew the people with their, uh, um, with, uh, from, 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 from their particular uh, close organization. Yeah. It inevitably works that way. Unfortunately, it works that way for the other side. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, of course, there's a parallelness in, in any kind of, you know, politics and and, and, and everything. Um, my old friends, you know, the ones who I was at university with and, and, and whatever, um, or, you know, on the, on the shop floor with me when I was a trade union rep. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it, it's um, in, a, in a situation which is, which is, really depressing in in in, in you know, beyond the normal level of, of depressingness <laughs> i think this is this is something something which should give us um hope and also a sense of purpose absolutely mm -hmm. but all you know yesterday no when was it? it was the day before thanksgiving over here it was on wednesday i um i walked out the door and i saw uh, one of my neighbors, uh, one of the things that's happened in the midst of all of this is that those of us who think alike in any number of different realms, in fact, this is instructive 
in terms of uh, uh, broader situation, a broader evangelical picture, shall I say, in that um, people in the neighborhood who are not just traditionalists, of whom there are a good number in Greenwich Village, uh, uh, but people who are uh, not even Catholic, uh, but people who are aware that there's a huge problem in society, that this whole question of the response to the coronavirus uh, has, has brought into a kind of common dialogue, have, has created a sense in my mind of just how many more people there are out there who are waiting to be evangelized for the Catholic cause and the traditionalist cause that I wasn't even aware of, even though I said hello to them every morning nearby. Yeah. And one of these people, the day before Thanksgiving, last Wednesday, when I walked out the door, had a big smile on his face. And I said, what are you smiling about? He said, I'm smiling because every sore has come to the surface. <laughs> every sore has come to the surface. He said, and you can't really operate on anything clearly until you're fully aware of the disease. Uh, so he said, he said, I'm smiling because I think that um, this is much better than it was eight months ago or nine months ago in terms of um, not fooling yourself about just how bad the problems are around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think on that on that cheery note, <laughs> we should we should we should wrap wrap this up. And I'm incredibly grateful to you, John. No, I'm grateful to you. I'm grateful to at least vicariously see Oxford again. Or the <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm yeah, I'm a bit outside Oxford, but yes, yes. No, no, I know where you are, but uh, but. Um, but nevertheless, uh, given you know this this great global fatherland of ours has reached a stage where we're all cut off from one another, yes, um, as yes. little serfs on our own territory with our local dictators in charge of things. Yes, well, yes, and it's it's it's. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful not just for this this little podcast, but for all, all your all your amazing work over such a a long period of time, um, and I I hope that more that when, when, when we're able to do things again, and, and God willing, we will be able to do things again, um, all these things will, will spring back more strongly than before. And I hope that if there's any lesson that we can learn from the current situation is that we need, we need the contact, we need the liturgy, we need the education, we need the, the human relationships, and we need to make, be prepared to make the effort to, to, to make these things happen. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I think after I'm done with this, what I'll do is I'll turn on my Vera Lynn recordings. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> or we'll meet. We'll meet again. We'll meet again. Okay. Thanks. Okay, Joseph. I shall. I shall turn off the recording now. You've been listening to the Iota Unum Latin Mass Society podcast. For more information on this series, go to lms.org.uk. <laughs>